Well, chapter 5, again, began with the people of Israel in the land at that place called Gilgal. You may remember Gilgal means rolling because there the Lord rolled away the reproach from Egypt, which was basically the fact that they hadn't been circumcised since they left Egypt, 40 years and there had been no circumcision taking place. The place is also called Gibeah Ha'arala, which means the hill of the foreskins. Because at Gilgal, at Gibeah Ha'arala, God rolled away that reproach of Egypt by cutting away the flesh in a renewal of the primary sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. That was the sign, as you all recall, that was the sign that the Lord gave. (laughs) The sign that the Lord gave to Abraham was circumcision. But it had been forgotten. It had been completely set aside. The last time circumcision had taken place was while the people were still in Egypt. And so here they are actually in the promised land. And it's interesting to me, me, the Lord hadn't said anything about it. He'd just been kind of keeping it quiet. I think the Lord knew the children could only handle so much. (laughs) Let's get them through the desert. Let's get them through the wilderness wanderings. Let's get them across the Jordan. Get them to the safe place. And then we'll remind them of of the sign of the covenant. Paul says it's a sign and a seal. Romans 4.11 Abraham received the sign of of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was uncircumcised. You might wonder, how can something so foundational as circumcision, as the sign of the seal of the covenant, how can that be forgotten? Well, the same way that we forget the sign of our seal. A couple weeks back, when we were here on a Wednesday night, we talked about the seal of the follower of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says, He who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. How many people come to Christ, are led to Christ by the Spirit, and then forget about the Spirit in the same way that the Israelites forgot about circumcision? How can you forget something as foundational as the sign and the seal of the covenant? Well, we do when we forget the Spirit of the living God. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him, after listening to the message of truth, you also, uh, receiving the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So the Holy Spirit is our seal. As covenant was to the children of Israel, so the Spirit is to you and I today. But what is the most single, most evident sign of that seal? Now think about this, because we talked about it two weeks ago. What is the single most evident sign of the seal of the Holy Spirit in our life? Which one primarily? Love. Love. That is the sign of the seal. That is the primary, primary manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives is love. Jesus said, John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for each other. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 says, Pursue love. It's not in tongues or interpretation of tongues or miracles or prophecies or healing or discernment or wisdom or words of knowledge. The Bible declares, Earnestly seek these. Seek the gifts. They are gifts God wants to give them to us. But more so than that, The Bible teaches that love is the sign of the seal of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love is. Paul says, if I have not love, I'm a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. 
1 Corinthians 14, 1 again says, Pursue love. We must never use any particular spiritual gift, whether it be tongues or prophecy or teaching or whatever, as a banner of righteousness in our lives. The banner of righteousness, the Bible is clear, is love. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4, He has brought me to His banquet hall and His banner over me is love. It's love. Now picking up in verse 10 with that in mind, and that's what we studied a couple weeks ago, we looked at that, but in verse 10 it says, While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. This, my friends, is the first Passover in the promised land. And like circumcision before it, it had been a long time. They were supposed to celebrate it once a year, annually, every year. But the last time Israel celebrated Passover, before this incident, before coming into the Promised Land, was back at Mount Sinai 38 years before. So 38 years have gone by. No circumcision, the sign of the covenant. No Passover, the reminder of God's rescue out of Egypt. Here, finally, they come into the Promised Land and for the first time they begin to celebrate, or they do celebrate Passover once again. It's a fascinating parallel to us. Think about this. When we're wandering in the wilderness, when we're lost in fear or or doubt or selfish concerns, that's when we tend to forget about our Passover. But when we walk in the Spirit, remember Joshua, the book of Joshua, it is a picture for us of the Spirit-filled life. As the people come into the land, so as we come into a life that is led by the Holy Spirit of God, The book of Joshua is a powerful picture of that. And when we walk in the Spirit, we gravitate toward our Passover. The Spirit drives us to Jesus, leads us to Jesus, calls us to Jesus, who is our Passover. And the Passover lamb is one of the most beautiful shadows of the substance. We talked about this Sunday. There are the shadows, and then there's the substance. The law is filled with shadows, pictures, types. The substance is Jesus. The Passover lamb is but a shadow of the true lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John 6.54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Then I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And communion is a picture of that, a reminder of that, that Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5.7 tells us Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. A person who is living the Spirit-filled life hungers and thirsts after everything Jesus. And Jesus Himself said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. But here's another thing to notice. Here we are in verse 10. This is on the evening of the 14th day of the month in the desert plains of Jericho when they observe Passover. They observe Passover at a time when they are staring down the enemy. Which tells me that you can celebrate Passover. You can come to the Lord Jesus. You can focus on Him. Commune with Him. Even when you know the enemy is about to be attacked or to attack you. You still celebrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Israel's there at Gilgal. And the Lord invites them to Passover before the battle. Before they enter the fray against the Canaanites, against those inside of Jericho. Psalm 23 verse 5 tells us, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What a powerful verse. 
Even when people have set themselves against me, even when life is coming at me, even when I'm under attack, God sets the table and invites us to dinner. Isn't that a great picture? A picture of absolute peace. It's a picture of victory is what it is. But I'm going to sit down and dine with the Lord on the eve of the battle, knowing that the battle is already won. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What a great time to celebrate Passover. And it must have been a great Passover celebration as well. So subtle. Oh, looks like air coming in. Well, we want that to stay outside. Okay, we'll see how that works. If Joshua had given a sermon on this eve of the Passover, or on the, at, at this particular Passover, if he had given a sermon here, it could very well have been entitled, Does God Keep His Promises or What? Because here they are in the land, and the Passover was a picture of that. God passing over, bringing them out of Egypt, sending them to the land of promise, and here they are in the land celebrating Passover. And it reminds us that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans 11.29. Well, let's read on. Notice what happens next. Verse 11. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce or fruit of the land. Unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now think about this. Do you recall what the produce of the land looked like? Let me read this to you. Numbers 13, verse 23. It tells us they came, we're talking about the original group of 12 spies. They came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. That single cluster of grapes was so big, they had to put it on a pole between two men. That verse tells us. Eshkol, the valley of Eshkol, Eshkol means cluster. And the picture that we get there, the idea is when they were in this valley of Eshkol, it was filled with clusters of grapes. And they cut down one and stuck it on a pole and had to carry it back. The fruit of the land was huge. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It was plentiful. And as the people enter the land, the fruit is there, but the miraculous manna stopped that selfsame day. When the fruit was available, when the fruit was there, the manna stopped. Now I want you to think this through. Keep your finger there in Joshua and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you can do so. Deuteronomy chapter 8, if your pages are frozen together, you just stay in Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. And watch this, it's a reminder, the people have been moving in the miraculous for 38 years. Tells us in verse 1, all the commandments that I am commanding you today shall you shall be careful to do so that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now watch this. He humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now we take that as the word, and that's how Jesus quoted it when he was being tempted by Satan, but there's more to it. When being fed out of the mouth of God, you get the picture of the mother bird bringing the food to the baby bird. 
and the mother bird has that, that worm or whatever it is in her mouth and she flies down and baby bird opens her mouth and it's from one mouth to the other that the baby bird is fed and God is saying, hey, it's everything that proceeds out of my mouth feeds you. My, my mouth, my, what I have to give to you, what I speak, my word, everything that you have, my provision feeds you. But he goes on and says, amazing, verse 4, and I think this is miraculous, supernatural, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. 40 years, and their clothing didn't wear out. I get from one Christmas to the next, and i got to put new shirts on the list because the old ones aren't looking so good. 40 years. Miraculous. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Now listen to this description. A land of brooks of water, of fountains, of springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land where you will eat food without scarcity. In which you will not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. What Moses is saying back there in Deuteronomy, I mean, you can go back over to Joshua chapter 5 now. What Moses is saying back there is he's reminding the people, hey, when you were in the wilderness, you had sweet manna. You were fed by the Lord. He provided water from the rock when, they, when you thirsted. He, he said you had meat when you wanted meat. And, and you had food. And the cloud covered you during the day. And the fire led you by night. And your feet didn't swell. And your clothing lasted. It was a miraculous time in the wilderness. I have never eaten bread that just shows up in the morning dew. Miraculous. It was a time of walking in the miraculous. But now they entered the promised land and were told the moment they took a piece of fruit, the moment they bit into, the moment they sampled any of the food of the land, the miraculous stopped. The manna stopped. It ceased. Now, if the book of Joshua and Israel's taking hold of the promises of God pictures the Spirit-filled life, is there a parallel here? I want you to think this through. April 6, 1904. The Azusa Street Revival broke out. Some of you may be familiar with this history. It was called the American Pentecost. And on April the 6th, 1904, the Pentecostal movement that we call today, what we know of as, as the Pentecostal movement, began. It was birthed on that day. At the Azusa Street Mission... There was a black pastor there by the name of William Seymour. And at the time of the revival, Seymour preached a three-point message dealing with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A message that you can read the transcript of today. And in this three-point message, he he made a fascinating point. I'm going to tell you what these three points are really quickly because they're so valuable to hear. William Seymour, who, who is the kind of unsung hero, really, of, of that whole movement, the one that God really used. A lot of people don't even know that William Seymour was the pastor of that church who was there when it all started and when it all broke out. But he said the following. He said, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit will cease, will stop, will end when these three things happen. Number one, when the Holy Spirit is emphasized over Jesus. When the Holy Spirit is emphasized over Jesus Christ. 
John 16.13 But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, Jesus said, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, for He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, Jesus says, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to glorify and magnify and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And if the Spirit is emphasized over Jesus Christ, the Spirit will be quenched. Because the Spirit's job is not to emphasize Himself, but Jesus. Second thing He said, this revival, this outpouring of the Spirit will cease when praise is emphasized over prayer. I had to do a double take on that one, because they're both valuable, they're both important, and yet, as much as we may love prayer, praise and worship, prayer is the hard work. People will turn out for a praise night. People will show up, pay money for a good praise concert. But when you say we're having a night of prayer, the ranks tend to swell, or tend to shrink. When you say we're going to meet at 6 a.m. on Thursday mornings, men, for prayer, the ranks shrink. Because prayer is the harder work. We have a tendency to love praise, because praise does something to us. Even though it's for the Lord, doesn't it lift you up? As well it should. That's part of the process. As we praise the Lord, we're lifted up. But prayer, prayer is the harder work. There are a few verses commanding praise in the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 15. talks about the fruit of lips that offer in praise as our, as our sacrifice. But there are far more calls to prayer. To be a people of prayer. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. When praise is emphasized over prayer, the Spirit can be quenched. And number three, first, when the Holy Spirit is emphasized over Jesus. Second, when praise is emphasized over prayer. And third, he said, when the gifts of the Spirit are emphasized over the fruit of the Spirit. What a powerful reminder. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. But remember, when the people entered the promised land, after moving in the miraculous, after receiving the gifts, when they came into the promised land, the gifts stopped, the miraculous stopped, the fruit was plentiful. And I think that's interesting. The key to their health and vitality was no longer miraculous manna. It was the fruit of the land. Signs and wonders are exciting. And they thrill us. And they attract attention. But listen, they do not produce faith. The gifts of the Spirit, while important for the body, do not produce faith. The fruit of the Spirit produces faith. The gifts do not. How can you say that, Rick? Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. And verse 12. Remember the people of Israel walked in the miraculous. More than any other people who ever walked in the face of the earth, with the exception possibly of the first century church, the Israelites walking in the desert had the day in, day out, miraculous presence of God leading them and feeding them and providing for them and protecting them. But watch what happens. Psalm 78 verse 12, He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. Miracle. 
He led them with the cloud by day and the light, and in the night, the light of the fire, another miracle. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. If that's not a miracle, I'm not sure what is. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet, verse 17, they still continued to sin against Him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rock, so the waters gushed out and the streams were overflowing. Can He give bread also? Will He provide meat for His people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel. Listen, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. That's how I can say the miraculous does not develop faith. Because the children of Israel had it. They saw it. They experienced it. But that's not what grows faith. So they come into the land after having seen more miracles than anybody else. And now in the land, in the promised land, they begin to eat of the fruit and God stops the manna. Why? Because faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. The miraculous gang, it is necessary, especially for a wandering people. Especially for wandering people. It grabs their attention. It can get people on track. But the fruit is necessary for those who enter the promise. And the fruit gang, that's maturity. When we are more about the fruit of the Spirit, even than the gifts of the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit pour out His gifts. Let the gifts flow as God designs. You be focused on the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 13 of chapter 5 back in Joshua. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho. You remember this. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? And he said, No, rather, I am come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. You know Joshua, the next couple verses, bowed down his face to to the earth and worshipped. And said, What does my Lord have to say to him? And the captain said, Remove your sandals from your feet. Now we studied that on Sunday. We looked at that. Something I just want to mention real quickly about this captain of the Lord's host, who is, I believe, none other than Jesus. Jesus shows up, presents himself to Joshua. The Lord is there. But it's interesting to me how these early appearances of God to man in the Old Testament, in the Torah specifically, and on through the book of Joshua, how amazingly relatable God chooses to be. You know, when he showed up back to Abraham, God shows up as a sojourner, as a traveler. There were three men who came to Abraham, traveling. Well, Abraham was a sojourner. God shows up as a sojourner. It makes sense. Genesis chapter 18. Jacob was a fighter. How did, how did God show up to Jacob? Wrestling him in Genesis 32. Moses was a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian, so God appears to him as a desert shrub. One on fire. Exodus chapter 3. And here we have Joshua standing as a general over his troops. And God shows up as a mighty captain of the host of the Lord. He appears as a warrior. All that to say that the Lord has a tendency to meet us where we are. To come to us in ways that we understand. In ways that we can relate to. Psalm 8 verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him. And the Lord visits us. In ways that we can understand, in His timing, 
He visits us. And the Lord visited Joshua and he directs the battle strategy. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went in and no one, uh, no one went out and no one came in. So the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with his king and valiant warriors. And then he gives them the instructions. We looked at this twice. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. Do so for six days. Seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the great city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. And as we saw on Sunday, every one of those commands in those last couple of verses seem to be in violation of the Torah. Every command, marching and fighting on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. The priests in the battle, carrying the ark into battle, blowing the shofar instead of the silver trumpets, all are law violations. They seem to go against the law that God gives. The whole strategy seems to contradict the law until we realize that Jesus fulfills the law in and of himself. That when Jesus is present, the law is irrelevant because he is the sum total of the law. He is the substance, whereas all the rest of that is the shadow. Colossians 2.17 No one is to act as your judge, Paul said, in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 6 going on. So, Joshua the son of of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. And let the seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men go on before the ark of the Lord. And it was so. Joshua had spoken to the people. The seven priests carried the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord. And they went forward and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. And the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. And Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I tell you shout, and then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. And then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, carrying the seven trumpets of of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually, and they blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did so for six days. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, verse 16, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now again, remember this. The Lord has a greater agenda than simply taking Jericho. There's more going on here. There's more that he's doing. He's doing things with and for Israel. He is developing faith. He is teaching the people in these seven days how to take possession of the promises of God. Number one, what he's doing, even four quick things to jot down, or if you're not taking notes, just listen to these. Number one, he is disclosing the peril of the situation. I think the Lord wanted the people to really understand how dangerous it was. 
to see how high the wall was. And a couple weeks back when we were talking about this, I talked about the people coming up to the wall and every day they would look up at that wall. And every day the wall probably seemed higher and higher as when we come back to a problem again and again and we have no solution on our own. The wall seems to be bigger and bigger, but that plays into God's plan. He wants us to know the peril of the situation, that we will understand, Zechariah 4.6, that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Number one, he's disclosing the peril of the situation to the people of Israel. Number two, he's disciplining them with the practice of silence. Now this is so cool. Because they were, the priests were to blow the horns. But for six solid days, while the people marched around the city, they were not to utter a word. In other words, they were to bridle the tongue. They were to march, be ready for war, follow the outline, follow the strategy, but don't open your mouth, don't speak a word, don't say a thing. It was only on the seventh day that they were allowed to open their mouths and shout. James chapter 1 verse 26, James said, If anyone thinks himself to be righteous yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now think about this. For six days, they marched around the city in silence. Six days. Six is the number of man in the Bible. Six is the number of man. Seven, the number of completion. So for six days... They march around in absolute silence. Gang, six is the number of a man. The tongue is the weapon of man. It is possibly the most brutal weapon that we have that we can use in our lives. Gossip, slander, insinuations, innuendos. There's truly something spiritual about that old phrase, hold your tongue. And so God's doing something here with the Israelites. Hold your tongue, Israel. Be quiet. March, but be silent before the Lord. By the way, a seventh day is coming when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then we will shout on the seventh day when Jesus returns. But at this point, he's disclosing the peril of the situation to Israel. He's disciplining with the practice of silence. And number three, he is developing the patience of the saints. It just takes time. God could have knocked those walls down on the first day, but seven days of marching began to develop in Israel that whole idea. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, now seven more days marching around because patience takes time. James 5, 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now there's one more thing God is doing here. One more thing, but it is not for the people of Israel. The Lord is declaring His power unto salvation. The Lord is declaring His power unto salvation. Whose salvation? Canaan's salvation. He gave him 400 years to repent. 400 years, the Lord said in Genesis 15, until the sin of the Amorite would be full. Or would be full. Until they had filled up the fullness of their sin. He gave them 40 years. Then He gave them another 40 years. 400 years. Then another 40 years while the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. Forty more years. So now you're up to 440 years. And then, and then the Lord gives them seven days. 
as they march around that city, every single day was another day of the Lord's magnificent patience for the people to repent who were inside that city. Israel is not only a band of warriors, they are, at, they are first a host of witnesses. They are witnesses before the Lord and before the Canaanites. And it's the same with us. When people see you submitting to the Lord, regardless of the peril of your situation, when they see you holding your tongue, practicing silence before the Lord, acting and living with the patience of the saints, it is a witness of God's power in your life. When we live His way instead of our way, it is a witness to the power of God. Now, as the chapter ends, and we're going to end this real quickly here, we see two diametrically opposed, opposed events that happen at the same time. Two things that seem to be opposites, and yet God uses both of them, and they are salvation and destruction. Destruction first, verse 17. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel a curse and bring trouble on it. By the way, chapter 7 is the story of how one man kept something he wasn't supposed to keep out of this battle. His name is Achan. Chapter 7 is the story of Achan's breaking heart. Verse uh, 18. 19. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted. The priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, they shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city. Every man straight ahead. So they took the city. In verse 21, a very troublesome verse. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house. Wait a minute, before we go into the harlot's house. (laughs) Hang on a second. Look at verse 21 again. Utter massive destruction. And James is one of the toughest passages in Scripture to reconcile with the heart of a merciful, compassionate God. Barbara Headley asked me the question. What about verse 21? How do you explain that? How do we reconcile? If God is a God of grace, truly, how is it that He can command, as He did Israel, to wipe out everyone, man, woman, and child, in this city? Even to the youngest of the children. How could that possibly be? Gang, where there is mercy, there must be judgment. There must be justice where there is mercy. Mercy and judgment go hand in hand. For without judgment, you don't truly have mercy. Now this verb here in verse 21, utterly destroyed, is the Greek word haram. And haram means literally devoted to destruction. But the same word later on in noun form is translated devoted or devoted things. So it's not necessarily devoted to destruction. It could just be devoted things. Jericho, a couple of things to note about this. Jericho was devoted to destruction by divine judgment. This was God's call. God looked at Jericho and said the city is not worth saving. Therefore it's to be destroyed. In the same way that he looked at the world in Genesis chapter 6 and said the world is not worth saving. 
except for Noah and his family, eight people out of the entire population of earth, which some have estimated was as big in that day as it is today. There may have been that many billion people on planet earth at the time of the flood. And God said, it's not worth saving. The sin is too rampant. The sickness is too deep. They are not even able to hear for the sickness and the depravity of sin. Man, woman, young and old, they were all banned from Israel's use and literally given directly over to God by divine judgment. It was an intensely corrupt people steeped in pagan rituals that included both religious prostitution and infant sacrifice. You might say, but does it seem fair that God would turn around and then sacrifice the young? Isn't he doing the same thing that he doesn't want the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites to be doing themselves? A couple things to note on this. Number one, we need the perspective of the Lord. We've got to stop and not look at it from our vantage point. We've got to look at things from his vantage point. Isaiah chapter 45, you can turn there or I'll just read it to you. Isaiah 45 and verse 8. We get some of the perspective of God in this. Isaiah 45, 8 says, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. (laughs) There's a verse to memorize. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. I made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their host. God did it. It's His. And whatever He wants to do with planet earth, He can do with planet earth. Because it's His. We've got to get the perspective of the Lord. And if you consider all the violations against little children there in the land of Canaan, over 400 years of infant sacrifice. Let me give you an example that's a little closer to home. Since the judgment in the United States of Roe versus Wade, back in 19, was it 73? Since that judgment, 47 million abortions have been performed in America. 47 million infants have been slaughtered in our country in the modern day. I have no idea, but how bad was it in the land of Canaan over 400 years of infant sacrifice? How many children by that time had already been slaughtered and murdered? We need the perspective of the Lord, but we also need the Lord's perspective. We need to see that the Lord has a way of seeing things we don't have, but we need His perspective on things. And His perspective is simply this. Ezekiel 18.32, the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter how bad they were or how evil they were. It doesn't matter if their death is deserved. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, He says, repent and live. 
And Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 3.9 that God is not wishing for anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. That's where the Lord's coming from. That's the Lord's desire. Okay, so how do we, how do we reconcile this with the destruction of Jericho and the wiping out of all these people? We need the perspective of the Lord. We need the Lord's perspective. But we also need, gang, the Lord's eternal perspective. One more time in Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah writes, The righteous man, and this is, a, this is an important verse, The righteous man perishes, and no one takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away, while no one understands. Now hear this. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds. Each one who walked in his upright way. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags? This is a powerful verse, that first verse of Isaiah 57. For it's an understanding. And I first heard this verse related to or or read at a funeral for a 16-year-old girl who was killed in a car accident. And the pastor read this verse. And it was stunning to me because for the first time in my life it made sense. Yes, she died. Yes, it was tragic. But guess what? That 16-year-old girl would never have to face a lifetime of sin and evil. She was spared. Every child that died in Jericho was spared the evil of Canaan. Every child that was taken out in this righteous act by the Jewish people as commanded by God would be later protected from the paganism and ultimately the eternal damnation that would come with it because God chose to take them out early on. The adults, oh, they were the ones who, as Isaiah said, as the Lord said, they were the ones who were sacrificing the children. They deserved the punishment. The children that you would say don't deserve the punishment have now been saved, as it were, from an earthly perspective. We go, no, they lost their lives. From an eternal perspective, no, they have been saved for eternity. And I would not be at all surprised. In fact, my assumption is that the children of Jericho will be with the Lord forever. And that would not have been the case had they been allowed to live. Jericho was devoted to destruction by divine judgment. But Jericho also was devoted to destruction by divine protection because the protection was for Israel to completely destroy any remnant of a culture of corruption and death because sin is desperately contagious as we all know in the world in which we live. Sin is a contagious thing. In fact, may I remind you that it's only the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today that even keeps us from sinning constantly. The fact that we have moments where we don't sin is a miracle. It's the presence of the Spirit in our lives. It's God's power working among us. The fact that there's goodness in the world at all is because the Holy Spirit is present. When the Spirit is taken out... Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 refers to him as the restraining influence. When the restraining influence is pulled out, guess what's going to happen? Antichrist is going to come like a flood. And sin will run rampant. 
This world right now that we live in has no idea how bad it really is when sin is allowed to run free. And God wanted it stopped. This baby people who are now coming into the land, taking possession of the promises, finally. He doesn't want the corruption of sin to infect them. And so Jericho was devoted to destruction. Devoted to destruction by divine judgment and by divine protection. God's judgment on Jericho, God's protection of Israel. But destruction was not the only thing that happened that day in Jericho. There was also salvation. Verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house. Bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers. And all she had, her whole family is now saved. And they also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. I imagine Rahab's house was pretty packed full of people that day because they said anyone in your house is going to be saved anyone outside of your house is going to be lost so she gathered everybody that she could friends, family, extended you know I don't know who all was there but they were all in that house and everyone in the house was saved brought out to the camp of Israel then verse 24 says they burned the city with fire and all that was in it only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived, I like this line, she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And indeed, she does. I mean, at the point where Joshua wrote this, Rahab was alive and living in the midst of Israel. But even today, as we read this, Rahab is alive and living in the midst of Israel in the lineage of the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. She is part of the story. And I'm convinced we're going to see Rahab in heaven as well. And we're going to talk to her and we're going to understand how her heart was changed, how her life was saved by the mercy and grace of God. Hebrews 11.31 tells us, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. By the way, did you notice here the two men are not called spies in verse 17 and in verse 24? You see what they're called? They're called messengers. Isn't that great? They're not just spies. They're messengers. They weren't just sent to spy out the city of Jericho. They were sent with a message of salvation. And Rahab heard it. And Rahab believed it. And so as Jericho is destroyed on the one hand, Rahab and her family are saved on the other hand. The walls fell and the city fell. But both destruction and salvation happened concurrently. It happened that way then, just as it will happen to the entire earth in a time not very far away. Both destruction and salvation will happen concurrently. Because where there is perfect mercy, there is also perfect justice. And when a perfect God wields the perfect mercy, the justice must come as well. Mark 16.16 Jesus said He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Salvation and destruction. Those are the options. Those are the choices. Verse 26 Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying Cursed before the Lord 
Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds the city Jericho. With the loss of his, loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This oath was a final statement over Jericho. The city is burning, it's wiped out, it's wasted. All the people of Jericho, with the exception of Rahab and her family, are dead. And Joshua says over this city, Cursed. Anyone who tries to rebuild this city, he will lose his first son. He will lose his youngest son. His firstborn and his youngest both will die if he tries to set up this city. And it was a curse. And gang, it was a prophecy. Because wouldn't you know it, someone did try to come along and rebuild Jericho. 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 34 tells us in his day Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram his firstborn. And he set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son Segub. There's an interesting name. According to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. And let that be a reminder as we finish these two chapters out tonight. When the Lord takes down a wall in your life, don't build it back up. When He waylays a wall, crushes it, destroys it, wipes it out, don't build it back up. Because when we try and build back up walls that the Lord has taken down for us, people die. It may be family members, it may be others who are hurt. But when the Lord takes down a wall, don't build it up. If you've forgiven someone for an offense, man, let it go. If the Lord's restored a relationship in your life, don't rethink the process. Just praise Him for the relationship. If the Lord has saved you from a bad past, and this is probably more important than anything else, and I have more conversations with Christian people about this than just about any other issue. If the Lord has saved you from a bad past, has broken down the walls that kept you from Him, praise Him for it and go forward and stop living back there. You know how many Christian people I know who continue to 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 whine and mourn the past. God crushed that wall. That is why it's called past tense. It's history. Go forward in the Lord. Walk with Him to the future, and let the bygone be gone. He already destroyed that wall. And if we do likewise with this, our fame, like Joshua's fame, will spread throughout all the land. You might say, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure if I want my fame to spread. That's a little prideful. Well, the word fame here is Shoma in the Hebrew. And Shoma literally means message or news. Joshua's news. News about Joshua and Israel spread throughout the land. The message that God is here. (laughs) The people are coming. Spread throughout the land. And if we will trust the Lord and go forward with the Lord, the news will spread. The gospel will spread. And people will hear the message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story. We thank you for the things contained herein. I know there are so many more we haven't even touched. But for these leftovers, Father, as it were, these, these morsels that you provided tonight, I pray that you would grow us by them. Father, may we be among those who, per, who seek the fruit and who feast on the fruit and who praise you constantly for all the goodness that you have given us. Lord, take us safely to our homes now. 
and come quickly, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.